Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Content. You know, you'd think the summer in Canada would have been a relaxed and unifying time when it came to COVID-19. I mean, the case numbers, they were very low, and in some hospitals, they even had zero COVID patients. Mission accomplished? No. And we had the vast majority of Canadians, they received a vaccine. Uh, people returned to the activities they love. And multiple provincial chief medical officers, they even said it's time to learn to live with COVID. And yet, despite all of that, we are having our most divisive and hostile debate yet. That of vaccine passports. Quebec, BC, Manitoba, Ontario, they are all now implementing some version of the system. What are these going to accomplish, though? How long are they going to be around for? What are the details? What does the charter say about this? What sort of exemptions, if any, will apply? Oh, and will Canadians tolerate exemptions as well, given the hostile nature of the conversation? To discuss all of these hotly debated issues, I'm joined now by Christine Van Gyne, Litigation Director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, an organization that has put a lot of work into reflecting and studying on all aspects of vaccine passports. Christine joins us now. Hey, Christine, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And I got to say, this is a conversation where if, you know, a year and a half ago, I'd, I'd asked myself, someone had said to me, hey, do you anticipate you're going to have a conversation about pretty much mandatory vaccines to, to be able to enter, you know, a store to go to the movie theater, the gym or what have you to deal with this virus? I'd be like, no, that's not a thing we do here. And yet here we are. I, I just can't believe how far we've come, Christine. Yeah, I think some of the politicians are surprised, too. I mean, Doug Ford said back on July 15th that vaccine passports weren't going to be happening. And here we are, September 2nd, and they're they're happening. It, you know, it, it's funny. You come from a, from a law background, a constitutional law background, no less, where there's a lot of sort of thought and reflection. And, you know, places like the Supreme Court, they are very slow moving when they deliberate on issues and so forth. And, and I feel like, you know, when parliament, when legislatures, when city hall brings in things of much lesser consequence, are we going to put speed bumps in the alleyway behind your house? Like how, how many months does that take to decide? How many staff reports get written up and then it goes to committee and this and that? I, I mean, things of much lesser consequence in our lives, we put way more earnest effort into debating and discussing than we have this thing, which like suddenly there's just a manic energy behind it and then suddenly it's a fait accompli and here we have it. Yeah, I mean, I think the speed at which this has happened has resulted in some of the policies having on their face really big problems. Um, for example, Ontario has said they will have medical exemptions for vaccine passports. Manitoba and British Columbia has said they will not. And I think that on its face is just plainly discriminatory and I think unjustified discrimination. But we can get into all of that. I just think if they'd taken the time to deliberate over this, we would not be in the place that we are right now. Okay, let, let's get into right away what you're saying there, the medical exemption. So what is a medical exemption for a vaccine? What would it be and why would someone qualify for it? Because I, I think there's a lot of confusion around that aspect. We all have a lot of questions about what medical exemptions mean because in Ontario, when the premier announced this policy, the vaccine passport policy, he said there would be medical exemptions for people who can't be vaccinated for what he said is a legitimate reason. Um, we don't have a lot of guidance on what that means or what in practicality it will look like when it's being implemented. So starting on September 22nd, I guess we're supposed to carry paper documents or a PDF on our phone showing our vaccination receipt to go into restaurants or movie theaters or, or what have you. If you, for whatever medical reason, can't be vaccinated, 
do you carry a doctor's note at that time? We don't know what that's going to look like practically. Right. But beyond that, what counts as a, a legitimate reason why you can't be vaccinated? And, and this is a really important question. The, the, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario has sent out a guidance document, I guess an email to their members. I, I don't know if there's going to be more guidance on this or not, but they said uh, if, you, if you're a physician who's going to be writing a medical note to someone about their inability to be vaccinated, they outlined some of the reasons that they view as hmm. a legitimate exemption. That includes um, an anaphylactic allergy to an ingredient or a component right. in the vaccine. And they also um, included adverse reactions to the first dose of the vaccine, which includes uh, heart inflammation or, or um, neurological. There have been some people who have had neurological reactions. Those are rare. I don't want to tell these oh, stories. Great, but, but they're actually saying if you were hospitalized for the first dose, you don't have to get the second dose is basically no, but what Anthony, that like you, The fact they'd have to spell that out is, is something. But, but uh, you'd be shocked. So I have talked to a number of people in British Columbia, because in British Columbia, they, they don't have that exemption. And I've talked mm. to people who have been hospitalized in British Columbia. There's a woman who developed a condition called brachial neuritis as an adverse reaction to her mm. first dose. Um, that's a, it's a neurological condition. It's, it's linked to, to vaccine injury. And uh, she, she can't move her arm essentially, because her nerves and her arm have been damaged. Uh, it's not a permanent injury, but she doesn't know how long it's going to take to recover. She's also pregnant now. Uh, since mm. having the vaccine, she got pregnant. So she's she's concerned about that too. Public health did an investigation in her case, said this is likely an adverse reaction, but you should still take the second dose. Huh. That's that's insane to me. She she's not listening to public health advice. She's going to be listening to right. the advice of her her neurologist who told her don't do that because we don't know what other nerve damage it could do, uh, including what nerve damage it could do to your unborn baby. But this is a really important point because you know if we leave this discretion about who is a legitimate and who is not a legitimate uh, medical reason for not getting who has a legitimate or not legitimate reason for not getting vaccinated if we leave that to public health they would tell this woman to go and get her second dose it needs to be at the discretion of individual primary caregivers and right. who, who actually you know have a real relationship with their patient and care about the outcome for their patient um not just about about broad vaccination rates yeah, I mean, you know, I, I take your point when we talk about how rare these side effects are. I mean, most people I know are vaccinated. They've gotten the two shots and I don't really know a single person who has had a, a serious, you know, adverse reaction in terms of being hospitalized or whatnot. I mean, the numbers, as we know, are, are very rare. But at the same time, you know, if a person is in this situation, to your point about uh, pregnant women who were saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm just not sure. Or, OK, maybe this doctor, or this society has said it's totally fine to do it, but I'm still just, you know, a little nervous about this. This is a new thing. I, I just want to hold off for a bit until after I give birth or what have you. I mean, I don't see why we need to attack, belittle, or restrict their participation from society uh, because of having what are obviously very earnest concerns about, about their own personal health. Yeah. So I've talked to a lot of people who have a variety of complex medical histories. So people who have uh, anaphylactic allergies to unknown triggers. Um, they don't know what exactly 
triggers their reaction, but they do have a diagnosed anaphylaxis. People who have blood clotting disorders, people who have autoimmune disorders, people who have pre-existing heart conditions, like pre-existing heart inflammation. For a lot of these patients, um, the vaccine is a higher risk choice. And for a lot of them, their physicians do say you should still get vaccinated because, you know, COVID also poses a higher risk for these patients than it does for a healthy person. But that's a really difficult trade-off for some people to make, right? It's a very personal trade-off and it, it is not appropriate for the government to try and force an outcome in one direction or another about that very deeply personal trade-off through a policy like vaccine passports, which the government and public health doctors are saying is about not just making safer spaces because they say they can't really do that. It's about increasing vaccination rates. So I have a lot of concerns with the failure to accommodate people with complex medical histories or who've had adverse reactions in uh, British Columbia or Manitoba. I have concerns about what the medical exemptions will look like in, in Ontario. And I just, I think we, we on its face have a discrimination problem with this policy. Interesting you should bring that up. I, I want to read a couple tweets that were posted a couple days ago by Jamil Giovanni, who uh, he's a radio host, but he's also uh, the government of Ontario's advocate for community opportunities. It's a it's an organization, I guess, a, well, part of the government of Ontario uh, that uh, that he represents. And he says, as this advocate, I am 100% against provincial mandatory vaccine passports, which will exclude and harm members of minority communities and others who are vaccine hesitant because of historical abuses and matters of conscience. Now, he posted this uh, as word on the street was getting out that Ontario's probably going to introduce this. He did this a couple days ago. And then on Wednesday, after the government announced it, Jamil Giovanni then said, today's announcement does not change my views. I continue to oppose vaccine passports and other measures that create a two-tiered society. I will work with community members to document the impact of these policies on minority groups and Canadians of all backgrounds. More to come, he says. Uh, what should we make of those concerns, uh, Christine, that people like Jamil Giovanni and others have articulated, that this is a policy that uh, will be discriminatory, uh, particularly to people who have been discriminated a lot in the past already? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with him completely. I think if you look at the demographics of vaccination uptake, there there is less uptake among poor and racialized groups. So uh, I have been really disappointed with the language that I've seen used around vaccine passports. You know, people who who support them talk about unvaccinated people as if they're and, and, and not just as if I mean, I've seen tweets saying this, saying unvaccinated people are dirty, they're unclean, they're unwelcome in society. Right. And, and this is really bad for social cohesion, uh, especially if vaccination rates are aligned with, you know, being a racialized person. I don't think this right. type of language encourages anyone to get vaccinated. No. And and as you know, I, I'm, I'm pro-vaccine. I'm double vaccinated. Uh, but I understand why some people might be apprehensive. Uh, and those are not bad people. So we should stop talking about them like they are. I, I'm very concerned about really the focus on, on other people's vaccine statuses as opposed to a focus on your own in terms of the emerging literature about what the vaccine does, many infectious diseases, uh, physicians who I'm, I'm privileged to be able to check in with regularly to ask them what they think about the emerging data and so forth. I mean, the data becomes increasingly clear that the vaccines are doing a, a pretty darn good job of uh, minimizing deaths, 
hospitalizations, serious outcomes, and so forth. When it comes to the transmission, uh, things are getting murkier in terms of exactly you know what's going on in terms of yes, vaccinated people uh, still still testing positive for the virus, getting the virus, getting the viral loads, uh, being able to pass it on, and so forth. And and that second part. I mean, that's really the crux of, of the vaccine passport argument and the crux of why people are out there vilifying others and calling them all these names. Oh, you're going to be passing on the virus to me and so forth. And it's kind of frustrating based on where the literature is at right now. I go, what is actual the uh, what is the efficacy actually of the vaccine passports based on the facts right now? I mean, I don't know that there is a huge amount of, of evidence that this is going to cr actually create safer spaces. So right. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. I, I just sort of generally follow this at a, at a high level. Um, and at a high level, we know that vaccinated people can still get infected and that they can still transmit. Uh, of course, they don't get very sick, which is a good thing. It's a good reason to get vaccinated so you don't get sick. Sure. Uh, we also it looks like they don't get as infected as easily as unvaccinated people. Right. But that's still, you know, we're getting into smaller and smaller benefits of of this policy. Right? I mean, we're chasing breadcrumbs here and yet yeah. we're implementing and, and a policy. Go ahead. Sorry. And it's at the expense of our rights. It's at the right. expense of some of our fundamental rights is at the expense of creating a society that's very divided. And I think that there's also a rationality problem with this policy, right? It it applies to guests of restaurants, but as many people have pointed out, it doesn't apply to staff. So um, you could be a fully vaccinated person in a in a room with all other fully vaccinated people, but the the staff at the at the restaurant, all the waitresses and waiters are are unvaccinated. And we know that outbreaks anecdotally seem to occur more frequently actually among staff than between guests um, because they're in smaller spaces, you know, at the back of the restaurant or, or what have you. That's sort of what the anecdotal experience has been from this pandemic. And I think when you when you have I think that that's a choice that the government made for practical reasons. Right. I think that the reason they did that, because if they tell these restaurants you need to only have vaccinated staff, I mean, they're going to lose a lot of staff and restaurants are, are having a really hard time right now retaining staff at all. So I think the government made that trade off. But at some point, it's like there's not a rational connection between the policy and actually reducing risk here. But isn't and that so interesting? rational connection is a part of the test for well, whether or not this is constitutional. I think you're so right about the restaurant staffing issue, but it's so interesting that they'll put in uh, these little these little sidebar items there in the rules because of lobbying for a particular industry or to deal with a particular concern, a very valid concern like the staffing. It reminds me of back when you weren't allowed to see anybody else and you couldn't have anybody in your home except... If there was a person who lived alone, that person was always allowed to go to your house for dinner or what have you. And it's like, well, I, does does the COVID not spread to that person? And they never, sometimes they would. I remember Dr. Eileen Davila, Toronto's chief medical officer, she'd talk about basically, okay, we don't want social isolation. Basically, you know, it's cruel and unusual punishment to say a person just has to be solitary in their home and not see another human being for six months and so forth. It's like, I appreciate that. But then you are not open to other sort of discretionary bending of the rules in other situations where people are clearly suffering because of the lockdown measures. So there's one type of suffering that you've said we're not going to uh, allow to have happen, but other types of suffering that you're kind of okay with. So it's, it's funny how they leave these little exemptions here and there. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the, my favorite exemptions in Ontario is that you have to uh, be vaccinated to go to a movie theater, but not to an aquarium. So I don't really know where this is coming from other than it, I guess the aquariums had good lobbyists. But yeah, I think a lot of the policies throughout COVID have have had a rationality problem. And that's not to say everything is black and white and everything needs to be consistent all the time. But having a rational connection between the policy and the goal is a part of the analysis that we look at under Section 1 when you when you consider whether or not a limit to our rights and our rights are engaged by this policy if that limit is justified. If it's not rationally connected, it's not a justified limit. All right, uh, let's get into that a lot more because at, as a litigation director at Canadian Constitution Foundation, you and your colleagues have really been discussing these, these charter-involved components of vaccine passports for quite some time. What does the charter say? about this experiment that Canadian society in multiple provinces has currently waded into? Well, okay. So first I'd say anyone who tells you whether this is 100% constitutional or 100% unconstitutional, they they just don't know, right? They're, this is novel. As you said, it's a grand experiment policy-wise that we're all going through. And uh, we don't know where the courts would, would land on any of this. But there are sort of three main rights that I think are engaged here. The first one we already talked about, it's um, the discrimination aspect. It's the the equality rights embedded right. in Section 15 of the Charter. So I won't go over that again. That's sort of, I think, most, most engaged in provinces where there are no medical exemptions. And in those provinces, I think it's pretty ironclad that that, that is a charter violation and it's an unjustified mm. one, especially because Ontario has created the medical exemption begs the question why uh, BC and Manitoba think it's impossible. So clearly it's possible. Ontario's doing it. So I think the fact that, uh, anyway, that we're, we're really looking really closely at, at challenging this in Manitoba and BC in particular, um, because I think the case is so strong there. Well, well how did this happen rights- though in the first place? Uh, staying on that for a moment, because I know you're familiar a bit with how government works and these decisions are made and, and how they talk about things in the back channels. I mean, surely someone would have raised their hand and told the Ministry of Health bureaucrats in BC and Manitoba, well, hold on a second. We, we may have a legal problem. We may have a charter issue with, with this aspect or that aspect. I mean, how was that not brought up more? Or do you think it was brought up and people say, eh, we'll deal with it later. Or, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. So I actually spoke to someone in the Ontario government about this before they announced it. I said, are you guys going to include medical exemptions? And she said, well, if we don't want to be sued, we better. Uh. So I think clearly it had to be on the radar for Manitoba and BC. I think the reason but they, they said, go sue it, me. <laughs> that was the attitude. Yeah, they I, so I think that there's a bunch of points, right? Like first, I think they did this in a rush. Second, they said, this is temporary. There's no way a lawsuit can be started and concluded before in BC, this policy is supposed to end in January. This is a thing we've seen throughout the pandemic. We'll we'll violate people's rights um, and we'll do it on a time limited basis because we can, we can get away with it because they won't actually get a hearing before, before it's all done. And in large part, the, the courts were closed at the beginning of the pandemic, right? So this was a really big problem. Uh, so I think that's part of why they did it. I think another reason is because BC and Manitoba are probably concerned that people are going to have like a bunch of BS medical reasons why they can't be, be vaccinated. Now, I do think that there are, are, um, are real reasons people can't be vaccinated. We went over them at the beginning. Right. But there's also a bunch of people who are going to say, hey, I uh, hear there's medical exemptions. I'll just get my doctor to write me a note kind of on some ambiguous ground. And they don't actually have 
uh, a real reason. You know, there's there's crummy people in the world. There's people who park in in disabled parking spots. Uh, they're not disabled. They shouldn't do that. This is bad. But that doesn't mean we don't give disabled people parking spaces because some people take advantage of it. But, but at anyway, the same time, I, I think, feel like if someone so badly doesn't want to get vaccinated that they're willing to like go to the doctor and try and fake something and, and get an application and so forth, I'm like, okay, this person really deeply cares about this for whatever reason. We're already, and Christine, this is always the part that I haven't really been able to get beyond. We have the vast majority of people already vaccinated. So you got just a small percentage of people who really don't, some of them probably just haven't gotten around to it and an even smaller part just really don't want to. I'm like, okay, let the person just not do it. I, I totally am there with you. I just don't think that falls under Section 15. That doesn't right, fall under enough, yeah. equality rights. I think that that falls into, you know, our Section 7 rights. So let me let me explain that. So um, Section 7 is our protection for life, liberty, and security person. And I think that this vaccine passport policy engages both our liberty rights and our security person rights. Uh, engages liberty rights because we have a right to move around freely. But I will say that that right does get limited a lot already. Um, for example, there are age restrictions that the government has on bars. Uh, there's restrictions on going into municipal parks after dark and all kinds of restrictions on your ability to move around. Right. So I think this, there's a stronger argument that vaccine passports engage security of person because you have the right to make choices about your own body. Uh, and as the government restricts more and more public space and makes access to that public space subject to an agreement to undergo a medical procedure, um, then the less it becomes a choice, right? And undergoing any medical treatment needs to be on the basis of informed consent. Uh, and as we take options away from people, that choice becomes less and less of a choice and more and more of a coercive force. So we we actually see our politicians and public health officials talk about this as as coercion, right? They say, this is the stick or this is the carrot and the stick. And the reason um, to do this policy is to get more people vaccinated. And, you know, the, there are things the government should do to get people to get vaccinated. They should educate people. They should make access to vaccines convenient and easy and fast. But they should not be, you know, limiting our fundamental rights as an as a as a rationale for uh increasing vaccination uptake that needs to be on the basis of a voluntary choice and consent there's another issue i want to get your thoughts on christine sunset clauses exit clauses adversarial review when we talk about legislation or government measures that can infringe upon our rights typically there is or at least should be the idea that okay this thing gets expired automatically after this many years this many months what have you this was a big part of the war on terror conversation and i remember mike lignatiev before he became liberal leader when he was an academic at harvard and 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 so on in the united states he was actually one of the leading voices talking about the need for the adversarial review and here's how you do the war on terror right and he, these are sort of the the ways you you know you properly bring in these different measures and it was always like this thing, because it infringes upon our rights, must expire at a set time. And we must, if you're going to renew it, because they often do, you must have a robust debate about that. Now, in Ontario, Doug Ford said, this is a temporary measure. We're going to get rid of it as soon as we possibly can. So I wrote to the government. I said, I'm reading your documents that, that you've sent to the public, uh, your documents that you've sent to the public and that you've sent to media and so forth. I'm not seeing an expiry date. I'm not seeing an end date. Oh, well, you know, yeah, we're planning to get rid of it as soon as possible. There is nothing like that. And that concerns me, Christine. 
Yeah, I noticed that as well. And I think that that goes to the section one analysis, which is, you know, this limits our rights is the limit justified. I think having it be time limited makes it more easy to justify. But I still, even if they did put a time limit on this, Anthony, which BC has done, um, they've said it's going to expire, I think, mid or near the end of January. Even when they do time limit it, I think they need to make it time limited subject to you know parliamentary debate not right. subject to uh the, the the public health officials renewing it right. which is i think how it's going to happen right i think in in a lot of these places they're being brought in by way of regulation uh or public health order and a lot of the things that were temporary uh public health rules we are still living with today and and like the war on terror stuff that you mentioned. I still take my shoes off when I go through metal detector at the airport. So right. a lot of the things that are brought in as temporary are still here today. I even if they said it's time limited, we need to we they really need to make it clear how it gets renewed, how often it can be renewed. Is it subject to debate and scrutiny or is it just like a regulatory renewal? Um, all of that goes to section one about whether or not this is justified with without these sunset clauses in place and some type of oversight and debate, I think they're harder to justify. Christine, one thing I want to get your thoughts on is how this applies to youth, to children, to the rights of children. It is a part of the whole pandemic response that has really frustrated me as a parent, as someone who's watched small children, sometimes have their playgrounds taken away from them, being denied so much, despite the fact that many pediatricians pretty much say coronavirus in kids, we've thankfully learned, is less severe than influenza, and yet we continue to bring in policies that really restrict kids' lives. And in Ontario, in BC, you know, when we, when we talk about vaccine passports, people are saying, oh, I can't go to the gym for this. I can't go to the movie theater for this. The vaccine passports also apply to 12 to 17-year-olds. There will be 12-year-olds who will be denied entry to these facilities unless they show their vaccination documents. Yeah, I think that that's a, a really great point. Right now, the policy does not apply to those who are under 12. Right. My kids are, are under 12, so they, they're they not here. vaccinated. Um, they'd be able to go into the into restaurants without me. I, I think the case for most adults to get vaccinated is a really strong one. I think people should get vaccinated if they are able to, unless they have some you know medical reason that prevents them from getting vaccinated it's a good idea to get vaccinated. I think adults, especially older adults, if you're in your 70s, get vaccinated. Sure. I think that the case is less compelling for for young people. I, If I had a, a child who was 12, I would still vaccinate my 12-year-old. My children are not 12, but if if they if they were, they would be vaccinated. But I understand a lot of parents who, who aren't making that choice. And um, and what about countries with, where they can't make that choice? Because in the United Kingdom, for instance, they have decided that 16 and 17 year olds can get it, but the younger ones cannot. And I know that's a debate they're having and so forth. I just find the polar difference so interesting that in the UK, a 12 year old cannot right now get, get vaccinated. In British Columbia <laughs> and Ontario, a 12 year old cannot go see a Pokemon movie or what have you unless they have received two doses of this vaccine that they can't even get in the UK. I mean, it's just, it's such a gulf between the two. 
Yeah, I mean, but it, and it's because we're listening to the science, right? And the right. science is completely unanimous. Cross-Atlantic science, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just think that it it becomes it becomes harder and harder when you have a, a part of the population like like young people who are not vaccinated and who the case for vaccination is is more of a community case, right? It's about like protecting other people. It's less about protecting you know, 15 year old boys who actually, you know, the trade off might weigh for them on their individual health might weigh against vaccination because of the increased risks of heart inflammation, which I still say is rare. And I would still make that choice if I had a a, a son who was was over 12. But for some, I, I don't get to make the choices for everybody. That's the, that's the whole thing that we're forgetting. We live in a liberal democracy. We don't get to run the lives of other people. And I think that there's a, a whole lot of people working in this government who think that they would make better choices about your children than you would they know better they 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 would they would run your life for you and that's not how liberal democracies work we need to be accepting that people are different from us and have different priorities different trade-offs make different choices and we can't punish them for being different and that has really been lost in all of the conversation around vaccine passports and you've hit upon, I think, the million-dollar point that has been missed, not just in vaccine passports, but throughout all of the pandemic. This idea that public health officials, well, they come out and they advise, they recommend, they strongly urge. They say, look, guys, you know, we, we, we want to minimize this virus. We want best health for everyone. We really don't want anyone getting ill. Here's what we really think you should be doing. And you're going to get a really high compliance rate on it. You're going to get, there's been studies already into this that, you know, places that don't actually uh, threaten you with fines or, you know, uh, police coming to get you and so forth. You know, U.S. states who legislate this versus that and so forth. I mean, you still get very high compliance on the voluntary measures. And I think we've really lost as a society this general idea that, yeah, you know, not everyone's 100% like you. Why isn't this guy doing this? Well, I don't know, just because they're not. Like, I, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on in that guy's head. He's not doing it. <laughs> And you just have to learn to accept that. And, and we've lost that. And that's what really worries me about the mentality right now, the sort of uh, the, the indignation that so many people are encouraged by, encouraged by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to feel about someone who is just not living exactly the way you are living right now. Especially when that person might be from a different social class or they right. might look different from you. And when vaccine right. rates are divided along those they're divided along um socioeconomic and racial lines i mean that's really bad for social cohesion which we should be working to to build a more cohesive society um not divide society this way and i i just want to add to what you were saying that on voluntary vaccination rates we have such high voluntary rates in canada they were high before these mandates came in and I just don't see the rationale for severely limiting people's freedom of movement and access to public spaces when most people in society are already vaccinated and certainly the people who are most at risk of getting actually sick from this virus are, are vaccinated. People who are older, who are medically compromised, those people are vaccinated. So I just don't see the rationale when the risk is it has has been reduced already. Christine, what are the next steps? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, 
I am working with some individuals in Manitoba and in British Columbia who uh, we, I've written to both of those governments. We're looking to challenge those vaccine uh, pa- passport mandates in those provinces. Um, if you are interested in learning more about those challenges as they progress, you can sign up for our mailing list at the ccf.ca and we'll be sure to update you as those cases progress. Right now, we're just at the stage where we've written to the the governments in those provinces and we are retaining lawyers. So we haven't filed anything yet, but that is definitely something we're looking really, really seriously at. And um, I don't know if your listeners know, but we have been involved in a a number of challenges related to COVID uh, restrictions already. So we, I am not all talk. I am action here. And I am really compelled by some of the stories of these people I've talked to. So I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm going to be able to help them in some way. Christine Van Gein, Litigation Director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.